The UK's leading sight loss charity, RNIB, relies on funds to carry out its work improving the lives of people with visual impairments. Now, there's all sorts of ways we talk about when it comes to fundraising. It could be sponsored walks, running marathons, climbing mountains. What about a trek to Iceland? Something which I would imagine could be fun arduous, something extremely memorable as well for those taking part. Well, RNIB's chair, Kevin Carey, did just that and he joins us from our Camden studios. First of all, why did you pick the Iceland trek? It was really simple. Um, As chair of RNIB, I don't think I should be asking my people to do anything that I won't do myself and I did it purely for the money. I am physically just about the laziest person you're ever likely to encounter. But people don't sponsor you for doing things you like. If I went into my village wine bar and said, say, guys, will you give me a pound for R&IB for every glass of red wine I drink? I'd get no takers. So uh, sponsors are fundamentally sadists. So the more difficult it is and the more unpleasant it is, the more they'll give you. (laughs) <laughs> so you have to almost shock them into into giving you something. I'm afraid that's how it is. So the Iceland trek came up. It's probably not the first thing that people would think about. They may think about maybe the, the sponsored walk or, or something something that keeps you nice and warm and dry, but you've really gone for something that, that got you out there. I think it was a, partly because, remember, there were seven blind and partially sighted people, there were some RNIB guides, there were some staff and supporters, but there were also, believe it or not, some people who came on this trek because they like trekking. I mean, I was in a room with seven other guys and a lot of them had run marathons or they trekked for enjoyment or they volunteered to do extra kilometers. So the bonus for them was that it was a good trek, but they hoped to see the northern lights. I think as it turned out, they didn't because the weather was so bad. So it was different, not just for blind people, but we also had to attract support from a lot of tough people uh, doing the trekking. So tell me about the, the trek itself. What sort of distances were you covering and what was the terrain like? Well, we were covering 11 kilometers on day one, and some of us did 11, which was the regulation on day two, but some people volunteered and went further on day two, and they trekked for about 13 hours. I mean, I didn't. I'd done two 11 kilometers on two successive days, and each of those is my personal best, which, you know, I'd never gone more than seven and a half kilometers on the flat before that, so this was... Um, personal best for me and on the third day we started off but fortunately the weather was so bad we had to turn around so we got let off and I went into um, a hot swimming pool on the morning of the third day (laughs) what was it like well first of all it wasn't icy like Iceland because it was autumn there was no snow there was no frost it was quite windy and very heavy showers so quite often the rain came sideways rather than coming from the sky down on top of your head it was very muddy we were quite often walking on steeply cambered terrain Iceland's mostly volcanic lava but there's a lot of lichen that grows on top of it in thickness of about a mattress and the problem with that is that when you put your foot on what looks perfectly flat your boot goes through the lichen and you go down a hole so 
For a blind person, the real problem was that I thought, you know, what we'll do is we'll go walking. It'll be a bit tough on my feet, but I'll have really good conversations with all the people around me. But actually what happened hour after hour was that you had to concentrate just on your next step and where you put your foot down. So in the end, although I was quite sore, the real problem for me was the mental concentration of just surviving and getting one foot in front of the other. It sounds as if the, the, the mental part of it was more tiring then than the physical. Yeah, the physical's bad, but, you know, you get back after you've done your six hours and you have a shower and you sit down and have a drink and in my case you smoke a cigar and the feet are a lot better but uh, the brain certainly took a good whacking. Now for those who are sighted obviously there's the the picturesque surroundings the landscape and so on for someone like yourself then uh, who's lost his sight what did you get from it apart from obviously the the concentrating on the walk itself was there more to it that you took in? Not really I mean I did enjoy really did enjoy how good the local guides were and they weren't at all patronizing they were great and they were encouraging and helpful and my rnib guide and the blind and partially sighted people on the trek and we were all supporting each other and the the companionship once you got out of this step-by-step thing in the evening was fantastic and no matter how difficult people found it they were all encouraged and no matter how easy some other people found it their their achievement was celebrated So that was great. But all the time, you know, all I was thinking of was the fact that before I left home, I'd got 2,800 quid on my Just Giving page and that I was going to reach my target of 4,000, particularly if I could come back with some really dramatic pictures. And in fact, really, in the end, I went to fulfill my contract to do this unpleasant walk and to get the pics. And both of these things happened. As I said, seven blind and partially sighted people Cider Guides, other RNIB staff, for instance, RNIB's uh, Director of Fundraising, Wanda Hamilton, and RNIB's Director of Engagement, who's uh, blind, Fazile Hardy, were, were both on it. So there's a good staff core to it. Um, there were some of our corporate supporters from banks, and as I said, there were some just some uh, really hard trek freaks. So it was a good mixture, but it was a fantastic from that point of view. So although the, the, the sight element isn't there and that mental and physical uh, you know, tiredness, exhaustion, if you like, was there as well, was it enjoyable? I think if I came back and I said to the people in my village and on my Just Giving page, you know what, guys, I promised you when I went out to Iceland it was going to be really tough and you know what, it was really enjoyable, I think the sponsorship money would have dried up then. But I went on... Um, emphasizing to anybody who'd care to listen to me how tough it was and the proof of that is that since I got back I've picked up another 800 quid and I'm very close to my target now and that relies on me honestly telling the truth and saying how difficult it was. Any plans to do anything else? Have you got the bug for, for trying something different? Well I always want to do what Director of Fundraising Wanda Hamilton tells me but near the end of the Iceland trip she said you know what Kevin she said I think we should put you in a cage and plunge you down into a pool of sharks. But three days after she said that, somebody else who did that found that the sharks bit through the bars of the cage. So uh, my wife was not at all keen on that. And she's put a bar on me doing that. What we both wish is that somebody would write a book called Fundraising for Slobs uh, so that you didn't have to do all these unpleasant things to get the money. 
but within reason and within my wife's permission, um, I'll do it a mast. As you know, uh, I've previously done a tandem skydive and I've run around a running track in the dark having people throw glow paint at me. And R&IB staff are auctioned to um, throw horrible gloop all over my head. So, I mean, I've done everything that's been asked of me. And as long as, uh, as I said, the, uh, my wife consents to it, I'll just give it a go. <laughs> Well, I'm just wondering if Wanda knew about the cage being bitten through before she suggested it to you, Kevin. No, she didn't. <laughs> um, Kevin, you know, th- th- there's all sorts of fundraising out there. The charity does what it does because people get out there and do things that may not be enjoyable, but they could look back and say, I've, I've done it. And, uh, you know, we still want to encourage more people to, to get involved and help RNIB change lives. When we did the celebration little dinner, at the end of the trek, um, I spoke to all the people on behalf of RNIB. And, of course, RNIB staff knew the message, but this was to our supporters. And it went something like, well, you know what? Although it's been difficult for me, uh, I'm part of the blind elite. I'm part of the lucky ones in contact with RNIB. I get services from RNIB. I lead a reasonably comfortable life. But we're actually here now doing this stuff for blind people who get very little or nothing at all. And as people live longer, there'll be more blind people. As government cuts, particularly at the local government level, bite deeper, we'll be asked to do more stuff. Our money's having to stretch further for more people in more difficult circumstances. All the time I was on the trip, I wasn't thinking of the money in a sort of a scroogey, miserly sort of way. I was kind of thinking what it would do for those blind people we want to reach uh, who are currently getting nothing from us. Kevin, thank you for uh, telling us about the trek. Let's hope more people do get involved in, in raising funds for the group. And th- thank you for taking the time to speak to us on RNIB Connect Radio. Thanks very much to all the people who listen to Connect and Keep yourself wide open to RNIB fundraising messages. Thanks very much.